That's the hard part of the message for me. Now it's the hard part of the message for you. <laughs> I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. While you're doing that, I, uh, I'm happy to tell you that I have uh, a pastor's son in classes at a mass. And uh, it's a federal law for me to keep his grades secret. <laughs> but I have a phone and I have a pen. <laughs> and I'm happy to tell you that the two classes that Luke took with me were A's. So let's recognize that, <laughs> would you? Uh, it's always an encouragement to... Uh, teach the students I was talking to Luca earlier uh, before service and uh, said I really don't like the vacation times very much. I miss the classroom. One uh, summer my children said, Dad, you've been too busy. Why don't you just relax this summer? And I did, and it was a terrible summer. <laughs> uh, that's no way to live. We have to make use of time properly. I am really very much committed to that, and uh, we are told in Scripture to redeem the time, to make it count for God, and God is very interested in time. He invented it. Time is not eternal. The eternal God began things, and time needs a beginning, and he brought time into existence. Albert Einstein said, if you ask me what time it is, I can tell you that instantly. For your information, uh, 10, 20, 10, 35, and I will close at 5 after, right on time. <laughs> that, that's easy, but he went on to say, to ask me what time is, is very difficult to answer. And it is. It is a succession of events. And the important thing to recognize, as there has been a theme this day, is that those events are all controlled by a sovereign God. That is an important concept, and we'll look at that in Galatians 4, as that concept surrounds the incarnation which we have considered in the past week, particularly as we celebrate Christmas, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I would like to broaden that to understand a little bit more about how God relates to time. First, Galatians 4, we'll read from uh, verse 3 through verse 5 of Galatians 4. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come. That is a very full statement. At just the right time, Jesus came into this world. 
in a very localized sense that had to do with the environment of that day. Rome was in power. The Pax Romana, a 200-year period of peace, enforced peace, military peace, but nonetheless peace prevailed during that time. And consequently, there was a possibility of movement about the whole Roman Empire without any restriction except what Rome would place on you. That was a good time for the gospel to hit the scene, wasn't it? Likewise, there was a commonality of language. The official language, Latin, the lingua franca, the language of trade left over from the Greek rule in the world, producing a Greek New Testament in God's sovereignty, all of that in place so that people could travel about and could, in fact, speak to one another. It was not uncommon to be multilingual in that day. Latin and Greek, and for our interest, Hebrew, spoken uh, in Jewish setting, Aramaic, and the uh, area of New Testament of of Israel, the language was in place. Yes, all roads did lead to Rome. And we find Paul starting off on the road to Damascus and told that he would be on the road to Rome and bring the gospel into Caesar's household, which in God's sovereignty he did. So the local setting, all these events that seemed just moving on their own, were in fact in place for the birth of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, and the spread of the gospel, the fullness of time. But there's a much broader picture than that as to the fullness of time involved in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Any of you hear the name Gabriel, an angel named Gabriel? How many know that name? He's an interesting person, angel. We first meet him in the book of Daniel. And he comes to Daniel with an enormous revelation. We'll make reference to that directly. Then about 500 years later, angels really work at a job, don't they? 500 years later, I mean, 500 years later, think of that. He shows up to to Zechariah. And he says to Zechariah, something magnificent is going to happen. Your prayer is heard. And your wife's going to have a child. And he's going to be the forerunner for the king. And he's going to prepare the people for the Lord. And he goes into great detail. Zechariah didn't hear any of that detail. He had time to think about it. Nine months of silence, after all. Had time to think about it. But he didn't hear that. All he heard was, your wife's going to have a child. And when Gabriel stopped to take a breath, an angelic breath, do angels breathe? I suppose they do. He stopped to take an angelic breath. Zechariah says, how can this be? I'm an old man. Very smart old man, because then he said, and my wife is advanced in age. Isn't that clever? (laughs) 
started way back then. A custom of humanity ever since the fall. You understand. That's the way it is. And Gabriel, Gabriel's angelic feelings are hurt. How can this be? He says, Zechariah says, I'm an old man. My wife has advanced in years. How can this be? Gabriel doesn't answer that question. He says, I'm an angel of God. I stand in the presence of God. And 500 years ago, I had a commission, and here I am, and the first human being I speak to questions me. (laughs) And Gabriel said, you're not going to talk for nine months. Never question an angel if an angel shows up. You understand that. That is amazing, isn't it? Way back in the book of Daniel, Daniel gets a magnificent revelation from God. And it starts to be fulfilled precisely with the coming of Gabriel. And then Gabriel will appear to another person, to Mary, with a similar message. You're going to bear a child miraculously. She asks a question about that too, not in rebellion, but for information's sake. How can this be? Mama told me, and this isn't what Mama told me. <laughs> you understand? And the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And that which will be formed in you will be holy, the Son of God. And Mary says, I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. So be it. Wonderful statement. Now, what about the time dimension of this? I've alluded to it already. The book of Daniel, (laughs) excuse me, Gabriel gives a prophecy uh, upon which all of our prophetic scheme of interpreting the Bible as we come to the Olivet Discourse and the book of Revelation and other prophetic portions is based upon this great prophecy that Gabriel gives to Daniel. And he says this to Daniel. From the going forth of the decree to the coming of the Messiah will be 483 years. I've done done some interpreting of that, but that's the way it works out. Seventy weeks of years are determined upon Israel. One set comes up to 483 years with seven years, the tribulation yet to be fulfilled. These years are determined... From the going forth of the decree to the coming in of the Messiah, which will be triumphant Sunday, will be exactly 483 years. How's that for timing? That's the fullness of time. That was prophesied by Daniel, the prophet Gabriel to Daniel, to all of us. 483 years to triumphant Sunday. The Lord drives a spike in our calendar. Or triumphant Sunday, Palm Sunday. That will be 483. But from the going forth of the decree, it says. What decree? Well, we have to wait for that a little bit. About 100 years later, Nehemiah is standing in the courts of Artaxerxes. This is the book of Nehemiah. 
And Artaxerxes looks at him and says, Nehemiah, why are you sad? And Nehemiah responds by saying this, my city is desolate. Now the Persians, of which Artaxerxes was one of the rulers, were very kind to the people they captured. They did not carry them off into a prohibitive captivity. They took people there, but they lived happily there largely. They did not deny their worship of gods. As long as they caused no trouble, they could continue on. Different than the Babylonians. So Artaxerxes says, what's your problem? I can take care of that. What do you need? Well, Nehemiah had been thinking about it and pulls out a list. This is what I need. And the king says, I'll do that for you. And he puts his seal to that. And God's prophetic clock starts ticking. 483 years after Artaxerxes said, I'll finance the rebuilding. It all starts. I want us to learn something very important out of this. Artaxerxes had no idea he was executing the specific will of God in prophecy. He had no idea that was happening. All he knew that he, the Persian ruler, was enabling this people that he had conquered, the Persian had conquered, to rebuild their city. <coughs> when he seals it, that clock of prophecy, God's prophecy, starts ticking. Is that amazing? Now go down to the other end of that prophecy. So you have 500 years, 100 years later, the prophecy's put underway. Way over here, uh, Caesar Augustus, another world ruler of another whole empire, the Roman Empire, is deciding that he needs to uh, take a census to tax the people. Governments have a way of doing that. Have you noticed? And he was thinking, we need some more money in the coffers. And he decrees a decree that all the world should be taxed. In those 483 years that were prophesied that started with Artaxerxes, 450 of them were up by now. We needed 33 more years so that the timing of God would be precise. And Caesar Augustus decrees a decree that all the world should be taxed, and we've been thinking about that. Why am I standing here like this? <laughs> he decrees a decree that all the world should be taxed, and Mary and Joseph go from Nazareth to Bethlehem so that at 450 years into that prophecy, Jesus would be born to live 33 years and go into the city of Jerusalem for triumphant Sunday. That is amazing timing. Do you all get it? It's amazing. Guess what, Caesar Augustus? Do you know the real name of Caesar Augustus? Caesar Augustus means August Caesar. It's Octavian. Caesar Augustus knew nothing 
that he was fulfilling the other end of that prophecy, that Jesus should be, at that moment of time, born at the appropriate time, to come in 33 years later on Triumphant Sunday. He knew nothing about it. Two of the mighty rulers of the world, ruling their whole world of their day, made decrees that they thought was their own purpose and choice, and they knew nothing that God had already planned that out, and it was precise as our calendar is precise. That's an amazing concept, folks. That's how God is related to time. He is behind the scene, and he is working all things after the counsel of his own will. We have been singing about that. Did you notice the songs we have sung? That's not just accidental. That's part of his decree, too. Now, the Apostle Paul, who in Galatians speaks of this, speaks of it in philosophical terms in Acts chapter 17, and I'd like you to turn there. This is a heavy-duty chapter that tells us how God works. The Apostle Paul is on his missionary journey. Excuse me for that. That will cover for all the rest of them, okay? The Apostle Paul had made his way with his company, including Luke, uh, to the furthermost point of uh, what we now call Turkey. And the Holy Spirit, the sovereign God, the Holy Spirit, forbade him to go north or east or west, I'm sorry, or south. And in front of them was the Aegean Sea. They didn't know what to do. Paul is awake at night. He has a vision at night. He sees the man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. The sovereign Holy Spirit had forbidden him to go north or back east or down south. And nothing but water in front of him. The man of Macedonia stands and says, come over and help us. And Paul and his company immediately proceed into Europe. The Macedonian call. The gospel was going west. Are you glad for that? Are you? That's our direction. It came where we were. And he goes and establishes a church at Philippi. We read the letter to the Philippians. And he establishes a number of churches during that period. The church at Thessalonians. Well, you think there are two churches, first and second. There's just one. Thessalonians, okay. He establishes those churches. And then he goes on to Athens. And Athens is uh, the center of philosophy. There were three universities in the world of that day. The university at Alexandria, Egypt, a really old university. The university at Tarsus, where Paul was from, a junior kind of university. And then a university in Athens, a leftover from the Greek philosophers. And when Paul comes into this city, he's all alone and he's wandering about in this religious city and he, he sees all of these inscriptions and idols. And uh, there's one that says to the unknown God. 
And Paul is going to address the Stoics and the Epicureans, the philosophers of that day, who loved nothing more than to debate a new thing. And Paul's got a new thing. And he grabs that concept. And he says, I want to tell you, I saw inscribed on the wall to the unknown God. The God that you missed is the one only and true God, and I'm going to declare him to you. And he uses the philosophical arguments, which is a fitting thing to do in the heart of philosophy, establishing the logic of believing in one true God. The unknown God is called the ontological argument. Everybody has an idea of God. An atheist is schooled in faulty, civilized thought. The atheist starts with a debate within himself. He says to himself, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's where it begins. We have never met a primitive tribe where there was not a concept of God. That concept is a learned, faulty concept. And Paul says, we all have an idea of God. I'm going to declare to you the one true God. And God does not need to dwell in temples because he made all things. That's called the cosmological argument. He created it all. And he says, your own parts say that we are the offspring of God. And that's true. God created man. We are made in the image of God. Anthropological argument. But the one I want to address particularly is called the teleological argument. Purpose. There is purpose manifested. There is purpose manifested in the design of God's creation. But more particularly, there is purpose involved in each of us. Listen to this verse. He made from one blood, verse 26, every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling. There is purpose, historical purpose, in the way God works through the nations. We have seen that already, particularly with the nation of Persia with the nation of Rome. God has determined the pre-appointed times when they should be and where they should be. Down through history, we know that. Likewise in Daniel, in an earlier chapter, Daniel is told by revelation of God that there are going to be these powers on earth. The Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, and a final world empire of which we have sung today as well, when the Lord Jesus Christ himself will be king and destroy all those other competitive empires. That's in the book of Daniel. God has predetermined those times. None of them knew about it. But they are working out God's timetable in the fullness of time. Amazing concept of history. 
But tucked away in this is what I have claimed for myself as my life verse. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. Realize what that's saying? In him, in God, this God, this one only and true God, in him we live, we have life. That we are here breathing today is a proof of God's involvement in our lives. We live. And we move about. We do our thing. The very routines of a day are his doing. And then it says, we have our being, our purpose to live. This is important. In him we live, we have life. In him we have the empowerment to go about doing what we do on a regular basis. But there is a purpose in the doing of that that all of us share. It was in that similar survey of doctrine class that I referred to later, a number earlier, a number of years ago, one of the girls asked this question. Uh, Mr. Clark, I, I've been witnessing to a, a fellow nurse. They were both nurses. And we were talking about purpose in life. And I was talking about how Christianity gives purpose to life. And she raised the question, do I have purpose in life? And that question was asked in class. And I had never gotten that one. You get a lot of them every once in a while, a new one. That was a new one. We all sense a purpose from God in our lives. I hope we do. Does the unsaved purpose person have purpose in life? Now, it's very interesting that in this passage, Paul is talking to the leading philosophers of his day. And he says, we, in him, we live. And we move about. And we have purpose. Like Artaxerxes, did he have a purpose in life? Cranked up the prophecy. Did Caesar Augustus, Octavian have purpose? Yeah. And they didn't even know it. And they were executing God's perfect purpose in their lives according to a predetermined plan that he had in place. And Paul is addressing unsafe people as well as believers in Jesus Christ and saying we all have purpose in life. There is a specific reason for our existence And that gives enormous value to each of our lives. We go about in a similar way, executing the responsibilities of our day, whatever they may be as we go about, fulfilling a purpose. Some of them are enormously big purposes, like starting up a prophetic clock, Artaxerxes, or moving Mary to where Jesus would be born, like Caesar Augustus. Other purposes are in place. I, uh, Christmas Eve, when everything had quietened down, 
everything was in place. Do you all know that experience? It's a wonderful thing. All those many plans coming together, all the grandkids' presents ready, uh, everything in place, the menu plan, and now it's a quiet period. And I uh, put the television on and came across just at the appropriate time, I don't know why, a life of Handel, particularly relating to Handel's Messiah. I mean, you've all heard Handel's Messiah. Magnificent piece of music. Written in two weeks. And it was a wonderful documentary of how that was put together. How a man handed to Handel the text of Scripture. He said, here are a collection of verses for your next oratorio. And uh, he put it aside. And then a bit later, opened it. And in two weeks, worked the music for it. An expert was analyzing it. They had numerous experts. One said, like all operas, an oratorio is a religious opera, basically. Like all operas, there are three parts. And the first part of Handel's Messiah relates to hope. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. The second section relates to the crucifixion. He was despised and rejected. I wish I could sing it. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. And the third section is victory. He shall reign forever and ever. And I saw in my own life a sovereign hand of God saying, David, this is what you have to hear tonight. Not accidental. Clicked it on, and there it was. The first performance of Handel's Messiah took place in Dublin, Ireland, and was uh, done as a, a collection for people in debtor's prison in Dublin. And as those great courses were being sung, they pictured all these people coming out of prison who could not pay a debt that was paid for by the singing of the Messiah. That's allegorical, folks. Historically allegorical. My son came over, as he always does, my good son, <laughs> to check in and see if I'm okay. And he said, Dad, what's wrong with you? Why are you crying so much? Oh. Because uh, I saw afresh God's great sovereign hand in bringing salvation to us in the coming of his son.
in the fullness of time. He worked all of these things out without us even knowing about it. And without us even knowing about it, his Holy Spirit convicted us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. We didn't know he was doing that. We felt guilty. And in a moment of time, each one of us believed that Christ died for my sin. Our God is always on time. He always fulfills things at the appropriate time. Behind the scenes, we're not even aware of what we are doing and deciding. But it is this great God who has made the nations and the universe with design, who causes us to live and go about and have purpose in life. Life is full of time but it's God's time. And we redeem the time for the glory of God. And we worship and bow at the feet of the sovereign God of whom we have been singing. And we say, our times are in thy hand. Father, we wish them there. And we are secure in that. In the fullness of time, every moment is the fullness of time for God's plan. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that you are great, that you are beyond our comprehension, that you work all things according to the counsel of your will, that you have determined purpose and time for everything, a time to be born and a time to die a time to do all that is being done according to your purposes. We are glad that you work all things after the counsel of your will because we know that will included the sending of your son to provide salvation for mankind, salvation for each one of us as well. We pray that that precise timing may be appreciated by each one of us. And perhaps there is a time, even this moment, when one will come to faith in Christ. We pray this for your glory, confessing your sovereignty and grace in our lives. In your Son, our Savior's name.